Good evening. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. As you can tell, I am not Pastor Eric. My name is Seth Schwab, pastoral resident here at First Baptist Norfolk. We're looking forward to seeing you uh, on Sunday morning. Though we didn't have life groups for preschool, children's, and students last week, we will continue to have them this week at, nine, at the 9 and 10.30 hour. We're looking forward to seeing you this upcoming Sunday. Uh, Pastor Eric has given me the amazing opportunity to teach the word for tonight's Wednesday night Bible study. This past Sunday, Pastor Philip concluded our series in Acts entitled Fulfill the Calling by teaching us that God opens doors for his honor and we should open doors for his glory. Um, the church in Acts lived out the mission that Jesus assigned them to do in Acts 1.8. That is, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. From that moment in time to the final chapter in Acts, the church was faithful to the mission that Jesus commanded them to do. Whether oppression or objection, they were faithful to the mission. They did not waver. They did not fail. Why? because they had the power of the spirit of Jesus Christ alongside them. They were so convinced of the message that they spread that they abided and obeyed in Jesus. They were faithful witnesses to who Jesus was. As we have spent 18 weeks journeying through the book of Acts, it's been made clear that First Norfolk's calling is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world and to specifically the seven cities of Hampton Roads. As we transition to our next sermon series called We Are Family, I want us to stop for a moment and reflect. If our primary mission is to spread the gospel and our identity as a church is that we are family, then I want us to ponder the foundation of the mission of our church and the identity of our church. You see, as we continue onto the next series, We Are Family, we can miss the point of our series in Acts. We can view Acts as a means to accumulate knowledge. We can miss the reality that we can make an impact on Hampton Roads. The very same spirit that was with the church in Acts is the very same spirit who moves amongst us today. We can fulfill the calling when our concentration and captivation is on Jesus Christ. The importance of this reality is embedded into our passage tonight. Turn with me to Matthew chapter six. We'll start in verse 19. While you're making your way there, we are backtracking a bit to the life of the founder of our church, that is Jesus Christ. At the conclusion of the third chapter of Matthew, Jesus is baptized and confirmed as God's son. He is then led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and in the wilderness, he triumphed over the temptation of the enemy. After triumphing over that temptation, he gathered his disciples, his followers, and he begins teaching in Galilee. He performs miracles, he does signs and wonders. Since he was doing all of these things, information about him spread throughout all of the region. As he, as he was gaining more of a populace, he decided to go up on a mountain and sit and retreat for a moment. His disciples followed him up to that mountain and then he starts teaching. He starts to unveil what is happening at that current moment and what is to come. He explains the mystery of who he is. The disciples were clueless to who this man really was. Now, as he is showing them who he is, they start to comprehend 
the magnitude and the trajectory to how their life is going to change forever. As we read and meditate on the teaching of Jesus tonight, I pray that we look at this and comprehend the magnitude and trajectory to, what, to how he changes our life when we meet him. I hope that as you study with me tonight, you will ask God to soften and tune your heart to be moldable in his steady and careful hand. That he will not only shape our character, but our desire for him. Let us read Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19, ending at the close of the chapter. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where the moth and rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Um, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, then your body will be full of light. But if your, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They, they uh, do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, what, are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour into his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. After Jesus informs the disciples of God's plan for redemption of the world by giving a picture of what the kingdom of heaven will be and how it relates to God's past work in chapter five, he shows how to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and how it lives in contrast to fake citizens or as he calls the hypocrites or the religious people uh, who are hypocritical starting in chapter six. He then gets to the heart of hypocr hypocrisy in our passage and shows us what it means to be a true follower, a true disciple of Jesus. He gives, the, uh, he gives them and us today the question of discipleship. The question is this, to you, is following Jesus worth it? Is discipleship worth it to you? Is discipleship important to you? Is pursuing Jesus the heartbeat for your life? If so, Jesus commands that the family of Jesus should be fully devoted to him because he is our king. 
Fully devoting ourselves to something or someone is costly and important. You are literally giving yourself over to that very object of devotion. When we watch Olympic athletes compete, they fully devoted themselves over to the training of uh, their bodies and training their skills for years. Their days are consumed with tasks that contribute to their performance at the Olympics. We all have something, to con- uh, have something in our life that we have fully devoted ourselves to that has consumed our being. And what is that for you? Today, we will see two marks of full devotion that Jesus commands from us when we follow him and that, we will, that will drive us to worship God, do the mission, and embody our identity as a family. The first mark is that full devotion is undivided. Full devotion is undivided. That is, our devotion, which is, the most, which is full, must be filled with one singular thing. We cannot have devotions divided between multiple objects of our affection. Jesus uses two short parables, one about treasures in earth and in heaven, as well as the, uh, uh, the parable about how the eye relates to the body to demonstrate the failure of divided devotions. In the first parable, he speaks of treasure on earth, which is easily destroyed. Let's say if you were to bury something in the ground, uh, something valuable, the odds are is that that valuable item will be destroyed. Most material items wither over time. A treasure in heaven, however, cannot wither because it is timeless. Heaven is a reality that is eternal. The focal point of this parable is found in verse 21. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The treasure on earth is being saved because the person who's saving that treasure wants that item to be insured. They want that item to be guaranteed. The saver of the treasure wants to reap the reward of that treasure over time. Jesus is commanding us to treasure him because we don't have to save him to get a greater reward. The reward is him. The plot twist of storing up treasures in heaven is that we don't have to keep Jesus secure. Instead, Jesus keeps us secure in his hands, declaring the kingdom to come and the riches that we will experience there. That is our hope. Jesus is not advocating for apathy or inactivity. He's questioning the motive of our work. Are we working on earth to make much of our lifetime and make ourselves seem significant to the world? Or are we working on earth to point others to Jesus? Is our life always searching for more? Or are we content in what we have now because, you, because we believe that Jesus is enough to fulfill us? One of the greatest temptations I face every day is multitasking. Some of you may think, well, there's nothing necessarily wrong with multitasking. And you're right. To be productive at virtually any job or to be productive at school, you have to do a multitude of tasks to accomplish and be efficient. Surely. Yet, the multitasking that I do when I, let's say, text and drive really assists my driving skills, doesn't it? Probably not. A lot of times whenever I text and drive, I swerve and I don't see the brake lights ahead of me. And my wife is like, Seth, Seth, pay attention. Beyond texting and driving, there are many aspects in my life that occupy my attention. Not only does the multitasking divide my attention, but it slows my capacity 
to learn increases my tendency to make a mistake. God has wired our brains and our hearts to have one treasure. If we have multiple treasures on earth and in heaven, we will not be fully attentive to God. God wants our full attention so that we may be receptive to his spirit. Full devotion is undivided. In the second parable, he hits on another failure of a divided devotion. That is unclear purpose. The eye lets in light and focuses on objects that are in sight. So I can see the pews in the room and gives guidance to the brain that that controls the body. So I can see that there are objects around me that I shouldn't hit into. The eye that is healthy, according to Jesus, is the one who is poor in spirit, the gentle, the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. The eye that is healthy is the people who do not practice their righteousness in the sight of people for approval. The eye that is healthy is the one who cherishes Jesus by spending time with him. And as we delight in him, we cherish his holiness and pursue his mission. The light that enters your eye should direct you to Jesus. His mission is our purpose. We should want to spend time with him, be like him, and live like he did. If the eye is bad, there are two results. We are going to be directionless. That is, uh, in verse 23, it says, um, your whole body will be full of darkness, or you will be disillusioned. If the light that is in you is in darkness, how great is the darkness? Some will live their lives running wayward to wherever. They're directionless. While others are convinced that they have light, but they are only living in darkness. That is, the hypocrites. When we have divided devotion, we will, as verse 24 says, hate the one and love the other, or we'll be devoted to one and despise the other. I believe that scholar D.A. Carson captures the core of verse 24. He says, attempts at divided loyalty betrays not partial commitment to discipleship, but a deep-seated commitment to idolatry. Attempts at divided loyalty betrays not partial commitment to discipleship, but a deep-seated commitment to idolatry. When we say that we want something else alongside Jesus, we are telling him that his sacrifice on the cross was partially enough for our devotion. You see, we were not people who just made a few mistakes and somewhat need God. No, the nature of who we are, though regarded as special to God, is heinous to the holiness of God because we chose ourselves over God. We desire to be independent from God despite being in fellowship with God. Even if God not ought to commune with us again because we have rebelled against him, he did it anyways. He did it nonetheless. His son, Jesus Christ, the one who is teaching this very passage that we are studying, not only taught, but lived his life among humanity, lived among you and I. Though he was perfect in all his ways, humanity decided to nail him to a cross and he walked to that cross willingly and died for the sake of you and me. He became our, abandon, our abandonment from God, our sin, our rebellion, and died to it. Death and our rebellion did not have the final word, however, 
The cross of Christ canceled our wrongs, our sin, and our rebellion. And because he was God, he rose three days later and triumphed over death, inviting us to join him in new life. When one accepts the new life of Christ by faith and repentance and devotes themselves to Jesus, full devotion forsakes what used to sustain those people. The second mark of full devotion is that full devotion forsakes what used to sustain you. When you forsake, when you leave, what used to sustain you, what used to give you life, and you find new life, new meaning, new joy, new purpose, new fulfillment, you find that what used to sustain you was baseless and unworthy. As we fully devote ourselves to the new object of our desires, that is Jesus, we will assuredly take, he will he will assuredly take care of us according to our needs. This is a daily decision, however. Every day we wake up, we must, as Romans 12 says, present ourselves as bodies as a living, uh, present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which, our spirit, which is our spiritual service of worship. And we will not be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may prove what the will of God is, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. The renewing of the mind, the forsaking of our past passions, what used to sustain us is a daily decision that leads to full devotion to Jesus. Though Jesus did not have to explain to the disciples why they should follow him and abandon their past passions because you know he is God and being God is enough. He helps the disciples get to the idea that he is trustworthy enough. He sketches another illustration for why they should trust in him. He gives two examples, connecting those examples to rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions help us to use some of the common sense that God has given us. What Jesus does so beautifully here is that these rhetorical questions do not give us awareness of ourselves, but who God is. If we are to forsake what we used to sustain us, if we, if we are to forsake what used to sustain us, we inevitably forsake leaning on our own understanding and our own intuition. We can no longer trust what used to fulfill us. We must trust in the one who gave us new life. As we become like Jesus, what used to make us anxious will slowly fade away. He tells us starting in verse 25, he says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, nor as to what you will put on. He then asks the first rhetorical question, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at who is asking the question here. Jesus. He is insinuating that life is more important than food and body is more important than clothing. Rather, he is claiming, he is stating, he is telling us that life is more important than food and the body is more important than clothing. He is asserting that he is the one who gives life. The first rhetorical question leads us to understand this, that God gives us life and he will sustain it. We see this in Genesis 1 through 2. Everything on this earth was created by God. If life was created by God, then we are dependent on God. He is the giver of life. 
And then Jesus continues in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the sky that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather crops into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He then asks the second rhetorical question. He says, are you not much more important than they? He again develops this idea of who God is from the creation story in Genesis 1. As God was creating the universe, he develop, uh, the, his development of humanity was key. A couple of distinctions of humans from the rest of creation are noted in Genesis 1. First, we are made in his image. We are made in the likeness of God. And second, we were assigned a task for us to rule over the earth and the rest of creation while being fruitful and multiplying. Through this, we understand that God gives us value. If, if he feeds the birds of the field, then why would he not provide nourishment for us? And then he asks us the same questions with the lilies of the field. If he dresses the lilies of the field with splendor and grace, why would he not provide shelter for us? He assigned value at the day of creation. Though we were dead in our trespasses, he made a way for us to commune with him again. He is the one who gives value, not us. Jesus then directly asks the last rhetorical question. He says, which of you by worrying can add a single day onto your life? He keeps it real. He keeps it 100% with them. He says it plainly. I am in control and you are not. God is in control. This is a daily battle for me. I always desire to control my circumstances and to get a probable outcome, but that is not the case. I'm not God. Are you attempting to control your life? What outcome are you attempting to pursue? God has given us an outcome, that is, enjoying him forever. And the means for that outcome is spending time with him and spending time telling others about who he is. He is in control. You of little faith, Jesus says, do not worry then saying, what are we to eat? What are we to drink? What are we to wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all of these things. For your heavenly father knows what you need all these things, that you need all these things. The question of discipleship makes us come to a crossroads, an intersection, a place where we need to make a decision. Are we going to trust in God? Are we going to trust that God is the giver of life? That God gives us value? That God is in control? Which of these characteristics of who God is causes you to doubt? If any of these causes you to doubt, talk to God about it. Lament to him. Reveal to him where you lack. Share your worries in a life group and let them minister to you. Read the word of God and discover that Jesus is truly enough. Strengthen, stretch, extend your faith in him. He holds all things together. When you come to terms with who God is, you will be willing to forsake what used to sustain you. Jesus gives plain action steps here by commanding, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you or be provided to you. What he is demanding here is simple. Are you willing to recognize that he is your king? If so, surrender to his will and do not find sustenance or fulfillment elsewhere. Tell others about the news of the impending kingdom of God, that he is king and he is coming. 
He assures us that all these things, that is sustenance or provision, will be provided to us. We no longer have to worry. When we answer the question of discipleship, that is, is following Jesus really worth it? That will determine whether we are committed to following the mission of God and living in his family of faith. Are you willing to endure being a disciple of Jesus? He tells us at the end of chapter six, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And though he provides for us and will be faithful to sustain us, that does not ensure trouble is ahead. We will encounter problems. We will encounter hostility. We will encounter rejection. We will encounter evil and we will suffer. But that is not out of the scope of our experience as followers of Jesus. But are you willing to trust God through it and find joy and peace that surpasses all understanding? As we close, I want to read Psalm 23 over you. The psalmist says, David says, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul and he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you, have over, and you have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Abide in him. He is good. He is faithful. Have a good evening and good night.